Hello, my fellow limpers. This is your host, Jordan Ross, and thank you so much for listening to another episode of the What's Your Limp podcast. Now, this is a very special episode because it's probably the most difficult and emotional episode I've ever done uh, because it deals with the absolute worst thing that uh, I could possibly imagine, and that is losing your child. Uh, today, I'm interviewing activist Fred Gutenberg, uh, but more than an activist, he's a father who lost his daughter to gun violence. Uh, and on top of that, he lost his brother to 9-11. His brother was a first responder during 9-11 and passed away years later from cancer that was a result of his service on 9-11. Uh, so he has lost two of the people he loves most uh, to two of the greatest American tragedies. And that's why I'm releasing this episode today, which is just a couple days after the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center. I can't even begin to fathom what he's gone through, the pain he's endured, the grieving he's endured. Um, and he gets into all of it in this episode. He goes into great detail about what was going through his mind the day he lost his daughter, how he found out she was no longer alive. It was a difficult conversation to have, but it was an incredibly important one to have, I believe. Now, before we get into it, though, I, I do want to address a couple of things. Um, number one, you might not agree with everything that I agree with, and that's fine. That is totally okay. Last week, I released an episode with a good friend of mine, Chris Sapphire, who's a reality TV star on the, uh, the show The Circle on Netflix. He's also a gay man. And just after releasing that episode, I lost about two dozen followers and received my first negative reviews on Apple Podcasts, which again is totally fine. People can have whatever opinion they want. But I just want to say now that everything I do on this show is out of love for other people. So whether or not you agree with my stance on LGBTQ rights or gun safety or anything else that I discuss on here, just know that it's all coming from a place of love for other people. And if that's not something that you can get on board with, then maybe this isn't the podcast for you. I will never bash anyone for their beliefs. I will never bash anyone for their stance on a, on a specific issue unless their stance is actively hurting other people. If your belief in something is actively hurting, oppressing, or discriminating against other people, then I'm sorry, I won't respect that. And I won't accept that. Um, but otherwise, if you just have a, a different point of view or a different opinion or a different perspective, and it's all coming from a place of love, I will 100% respect you. But it's all about love. It's all about loving others. And that's what this podcast is about. That's the goal is to create more empathy and more understanding and more unity. I hope that this podcast can accomplish that. The reason I mention all of that is because today, talking to Fred, uh, he is a strong believer in, in gun safety. He's not opposed to guns, and neither am I. Uh, we are, however, in favor of common sense gun laws. And you might not be. And if so, okay. Um, but I just ask that you listen to this episode. If that is the case, if you're not in favor of common sense gun laws, uh, listen to this episode from the perspective of a parent or 
a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter and imagine what it would be like to lose the person that you love the most. Listen to what Fred has gone through. Because I can't imagine hearing the pain he's endured and then being angry at him for doing the only thing he knows how to do to try to prevent other people from suffering that same kind of pain and loss. And to me, that's admirable, whether or not you agree with the approach or with uh, the things that he's supporting. I think it's admirable that he's trying to make a positive come out of the worst possible situation you can imagine. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, play this episode, my conversation with Fred Gutenberg, and I really hope that uh, it affects all of you as much as it affected me. hear me all right i hear you fine hang on how are you, you doing good how are you doing good 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 i appreciate you doing this before we we get into the the meat of things i was wondering um you know if you could just tell me like what what childhood was like you know growing up what was you know what did your parents do just kind of the the basics yeah. you know what i i i had the uh totally perfectly normal childhood growing up on Long Island. Um, I was, I guess the part of it that maybe wasn't so typical was I was one of five kids. Um, of course we had the family dog. Um, and, um, you know, I went to the uh, Colmax school district, which back then was certainly known to be stellar schools. Uh, I can't speak for what it is now, uh, but we had such a normal, Typical childhood on a great block with lots of kids, always, always outside. My mom was a registered nurse. My dad owned a pharmacy. But we we were always outdoors, you know, whether you were playing sports or just being goofballs in the neighborhood um, or just hanging out with friends. You didn't worry about things the way you do now, you know, it was just different um it was a great place to grow up so you talked about uh, you you had one brother right and he he passed away uh... so i'm one of five kids three brothers and one sister one of my brothers passed away from cancer related to his service in 9-11 right um he uh ran the triage for the world trade center he was a physician and um, his office at the time, he was the deputy medical director of the New York Fire Department. His office was literally just two blocks away from the World Trade Center. So he and his crew were at the World Trade Center before the second building even got hit. They were in the World Trade Center when it collapsed. They were setting up a triage at a basement level between, I think, Buildings two and seven, I think, is if memory serves me correct. Um, buildings one and two are the towers, but World Trade Center had a lot of lower level buildings as well. And um, they were there setting up triage when they started to hear more noise. And they're like, what's that now? And then they saw dust and debris. They hid out in the room that they were going to be using for supplies. And amazingly, when the noise stopped, 
they tried to walk out the door. They walked into that room in. It was blocked by rubble. Everything collapsed around them. For some reason, this room didn't collapse. Wow. Um, and they ended up finding another way out. But he breathed everything in. And years later, got the cancer that resulted from that in 2013. And he passed away in 2017. Wow. I'm so sorry to hear that. And, and you know, I, I wonder obviously that was one of those days that that everyone that was alive then will always remember what they were feeling what they were thinking in those moments i was 11 um but i still remember it like it was yesterday you know being even in texas is almost as far away as i could be from there it was still so terrifying and so heartbreaking as an 11 year old watching it on tv so i can only imagine what it would be like for someone that had a loved one there um what was going on in your your head as all that was happening, knowing your brother was there? Like, were you able, when did you get updates and know that, yeah. okay, he made it? Like, what, what, how did all that happen? There are two things that I remember about that day, like yesterday. One was sitting, my now 20-year-old son, he was just under a year at the time, on my lap and trying to explain to him how I thought the world was going to be different because of what was happening on that day. And I just remember sitting him on my lap, having this, this talk that he couldn't understand, but I was just looking ahead. The other thing I remember about that day was my family and I thinking my brother probably died that day. Um, we went through the entire morning, not hearing from my brother and we know my brother. Um, I am a guy um, who is wired <clears throat> when I see tragedy like that you know I'm, there are first responders who are wired to run in that was my brother i was wired i'm not wired that way forget what people see with me now in this world of gun violence that's not the way i was wired but my brother was and so we knew he was there when we didn't hear from him we were certain he was there and as the day went on um we lost hope and by mid-afternoon we started thinking the worst and that my brother was probably buried in there until about 4 p.m. This amazing lady, and she's one of the reasons why I wrote my book called Find the Helpers, because she's really the first person who got me thinking in terms of helpers. This amazing lady that day went by where my brother and the other first responder set up their triage, which was blocks away at Battery Park. They had to get far away to avoid other types of things that they were worried about. She went there, pen and paper, and just said to all the first responders, I'm sure you have a loved one. Just give me a name and a phone number and I'll call them for you. Wow. And this lady called my parents around 4 p.m. that day and said, I've spoken to your loved one. He is alive. He is working. He told me to tell you all. He will call you when he can. That was the first sign of life we had from my brother that day. From this amazing woman who would not give my parents her name. To this day, I'll never know who she was, but she'll always be one of the most important people in my life. That just gave me chills. It's incredible when you hear stories like that, that, that came out of that entire day. You know, every year when the anniversary comes around and you see all these specials on TV and they're interviewing, you know, survivors or people that were involved. I feel like I'm constantly learning new stories about the helpers and it's, it's uh, for such a dark day. There, there was a lot of, of 
love and a lot of good that was going on down there at, at Ground Zero. And yeah, geez. Listen, I, I remember my parents calling all of us after that phone call as if it was yesterday. It is now almost 20 years. Today's July 26th. We are a month and a half away from this being 20 years. That's crazy to think about. Yeah. Um, so your your brother, who sounds incredible, uh, he passed away not too long before you lost your daughter. Is that yeah. right? Wow. Four months. Wow. Um, four months. We we as a family had never gone through loss. Yeah. You know, we, my siblings were alive. My parents were still alive. And so we, we had never gone through loss. And so we were struggling. You know, I was struggling, to be quite honest. I was very, My brother and I are exactly a year apart, 13 months. Very, very close. We had always had the same friends. Um, he lived in New York. I was living in Florida, but we were always very close. And in his final year, uh, I spent almost every week going back and forth to help him out with things that he needed and medical appointments and personal affairs. And then I'd fly back home to Florida. And fortunately, I was in a position to do it because I had sold my business in 2016. Um, when he had passed, I was going through this phase where for the first time in my life, and you know, I'm 55 now, um, I didn't know what I was going to do when I woke up in the morning. Even after I sold my business, my purpose was taking care of my family, but also taking care of my brother and making sure I had the ability to do that. And for the first time in my adult life, I'd wake up, I had no idea. And so around November, I started talking about wanting to maybe look for another business or just get a job, just something to wake up for every day. I am not good at waking up and saying, hey, what am I going to do today? It's just, it's not my thing. Um, and I was searching and I was searching for purpose, you know, and uh, my wife just said, listen, do me a favor. You haven't stopped since you're like a 20-year-old. Take the rest of the year off. In January, start searching. So I listened and I did. In January, I started searching. And then February 14, 2018 happened. Um, I sent my two kids to school. And um, I was finally in a place where we were feeling better as a family. And I actually, because of what we went through as a family, Wanted to make this Valentine's Day more special than the ones that came before it, um, especially for my kids. And just to kind of have this really loving thing happen in our house that day and introducing the concept of romance. And I had taken my wedding video, with, which had been on an old VHS, which my kids still hadn't seen because we didn't have a VHS player in the house. Um, and I converted it to a digital format. And we were going to watch it that night with my kids. That was my plan that Valentine's Day. I sent my two kids off to school, rushing them out the door because as normal, they were running late and they were blaming each other and they were being siblings and um, I rushed them out the door. My last words to my kid were, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta get to school, you're gonna be late. Not expecting, those would be my last words to my daughter. But that day, my children were in a school shooting. Um, my son called me around 2 p.m just after two, around 2.05. And he's like, dad. And I said, what? There's a shooter at my school. And my son is a bit of a jokester. So I was like, what are you talking about? 
He's like, there's a shooter at my school. And it, he watched after his sister like a hawk. So even after he said it again, I'm still thinking, do I take him seriously or not? But then he said, and I can't find Jamie. And the second he said that, because he would never mess around with her safety, I knew it was real. And I just said, well, where are you? He said, they're telling us all to just run, like run off the campus if we can. I said, then do that, run, but run faster. He's like, I can't find Jamie. He's like, you need to run. All he could think about was he couldn't find Jamie. And I said, I'll worry about your sister. You have to run. And as I'm saying that, he's like, there's more shots. That was the shooter on the third floor. He was literally listening to the shots that were killing his sister. And um, he wanted to turn around. And I had to just, I had to keep him on the phone to convince him not to do that. Um, and eventually I found him. But as we all know, the rest of the story, uh, my daughter was killed that day on the third floor, second to last to be shot, running down the hallway, knowing there was an active shooter with an AR-15 in her back, running for her life. And it's on video. Um, so we know what happened. Uh, yeah, we just celebrated, celebrated. We commemorated <laughs> what should have been her 18th birthday on July 13th. Um, my daughter should be living her best life right now. Yeah, she should. And it's, I, I'm a dad as well. Um, I've, I've got three really young kids. My, my oldest is about, she's going to turn six in August. Um, my middle, she's going to turn three. And then I have a one-year-old boy. And um, it's my, my greatest nightmare, as with every parent, is losing a child. And in that way, especially, not, not that any way is, is good or easier than the other, but in that way, it, it makes every time I see one of these shootings, it makes me so angry because it's something as um, I know you, you relate even more, you, you know it more than I do, but that, that anger, because it's, it's something that's, you know, these things can be prevented or, or, you know, that the, there are things that we could put in place to p potentially prevent these things, but those things aren't happening. And um, it's it's so frustrating and infuriating and knowing that my daughter, who's who's almost six, it's, you know, you have to prepare them for things. And I have to teach her certain, you know, you don't want them to, to be terrified all the time, but you want them to be prepared. And, um, you know, going to the movies and, and sitting down, I'm always, I'm looking at exits. I'm looking at, yeah, okay, yeah. where am I sitting? And, and um, it's really, really sad that that's the, the, the state that we're in right now. But um, I, I just, I, I can't even fathom what, what you've experienced and what you've gone through. Um, you know, I, it, it breaks my heart. And after everyone, I remember after Sandy Hook, thinking okay this is the one that's going to change things this yeah. is when it's finally going to happen and you know nothing and then it happens again and again and again so with you before we get into your activism and everything what was being on that day when it happened at what point how long was it just you know i'm sure it brought back these horrible memories of when your brother was at ground zero um, at what point did you find out that she hadn't made it? Like, where mm -hmm. were you? How, how did all of that unfold? Yeah. And um, listen, thank you for talking about your kids. Because you and your kids are the reason I do what I do now. Because you 
should be able to raise them in a place where this isn't normal, where this isn't okay, and where this is no longer something that we expect could happen. Um, to answer your question, um, what happened that day was we couldn't reach my daughter, okay, on her phone. And my daughter and my wife, they communicated about everything. I mean, if Jamie's shoelace came untied, she would text my wife to let her know. You know, it was just everything I communicated. So when we couldn't reach her, we started to become concerned. But we still knew there was hope that maybe in the process of running, she dropped her phone and eventually she'd reach us through someone else's phone. But one by one, all of her friends started reaching their parents and they weren't with Jamie. And so probably around 3.30ish that afternoon, I mean, just after an hour or so after the shooting, my wife and I made the decision to go over to the hospital, um, hope, hoping my daughter was there, was shot in there. Okay. Um, I mean, I'm now at a place now where I'm praying that my daughter was shot, but okay. And we went over to the hospital um, in two separate cars because we were coming from two separate places. No sign of my daughter in this hospital. They spent about an hour checking there. They spent, they checked other hospitals. Um, no sign of my daughter. And so my wife and I are panicking. One of my very, very, very best friends is a local police officer there. He had been on the scene earlier. When we left the hospital, I called him to let him know there's no sign of her in the hospital. And I asked him to go back. And he went back to the school. Um, the, uh, at the time, the Broward Sheriff's Office was commanding the scene. Uh, the FBI was there. Um, he said he'd like to just take a look to see if he can see some of the victims and see if by some chance one wasn't my daughter when he described her. They knew exactly who he was talking about, and they walked him over there. And um, he he identified my daughter. Um, we're probably now looking at somewhere in the vicinity of 5 p.m. that afternoon. And uh, he called me. My wife and I had already left the hospital. Um, we were taking some back roads that would eventually get us to the highway. And we were about to turn onto the highway when he called me and said, do me a favor, meet me at the Marriott Hotel. Now, that's where law enforcement was telling all the families to go, kind of a reunification type center. And I said, I want to go home. I don't want to go there. And he said, just meet me there. And I said, I don't want to. He says, trust me. He goes, that's where we're going to talk. I said, what do you know? You know, I said, you know something. And as soon as I said that, he broke down crying. And he just said, she's gone. Um, at that point, my wife was in the car in front of me. We're getting ready to turn onto the highway. And she's looking in her rearview mirror. And she sees I'm on the phone. And she could also see that I'm wiping my eyes, that I'm getting emotional. So she's now calling me saying, what's going on? And I said, nothing. I didn't want to tell her because she was driving. And I said, nothing. I'm on with Scott. He wants us to meet us, to meet him at the Marriott Hotel. Now I'm giving her the same line of BS. And she's saying, I don't want to go there. 
I said, well, that's where they want to talk to us. And she's like, about what? I said, Jen, just focus on driving. Let's get there safely. That's where we're going to go. She goes, you know. And she's like, you have to tell me right now. So I said, pull over. So off the side of the highway, my wife and I pulled over. And that's where I had to tell my wife that our daughter was murdered. Um, needless to say, um, we didn't go to the Marriott Hotel at that time. We went home. We asked my in-laws, who at the time had my son with them, to meet us at the house. And by the time we got home, you know, we had so many people who were searching for us, friends. Um, and they kept on checking in. And I let a few of them know just she's gone. Before you know it, people were posting it on Facebook. And by 7 p.m. that night, helicopters flying over my house, the news media showing up at my door, calling my phone. Um, and um, fortunately, I have a lot of friends in law enforcement. So they ended up securing my home so nobody could come to my home that wasn't invited. Um, so we were able to control the media, at least for the night. Um, later that night, we went to the Marriott Hotel where all the other families were who still did not receive official notification. And um, there was around one o'clock in the morning where we got the official notification from the FBI. Um, but um, that was that day. So much of that day, I remember as if it had just happened. There's so much of it that's a blur. To this day, people still come up to me and tell me things about that day or a conversation they had with me or meeting me at the reunification center that night. And I don't remember. You know, um, the mayor of Parkland said to me, she saw me that night at the reunification center. And I told her that night that um, I'm going to take down the gun lobby and that this is going to be my purpose. I have no recollection of that conversation. In my mind, this all started for me a day later at the Parkland Vigil. I have no recollection of even seeing the mayor there. But that's, you know, it was a whirlwind. Just hearing that, it feels like a, a punch in my gut. You know, just just putting myself in your shoes and, uh, you know, even... My my oldest, when she was a baby, you know how when you like lift up a baby by their hands, their their arms like it's easier to get kind of pulled out of out of socket or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I picked her up when she was really young, and it just kind of pulled her arm out, and she started crying, and she didn't stop, so we had to take her to the ER, and they did an X-ray, and it ended up being fine. It's but, nothing. It happens to kids all the time. Right, right. <laughs> and but I felt As so they call guilty. it. There's a name for it. I don't remember what it is. Yeah, um, but I felt so guilty, and and just yeah. having her in that situation, just like a, a tiny little thing on her arm, and 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 seeing her in that situation, it broke my heart. And so the thought of of any your child going through any pain or any fear, anything like that is just the worst possible feeling in the world. And I, not too long ago, we were at my, my in-laws house with our kids and, and our oldest, something happened. We had to, you know, get onto her for getting, you know, for being mean to her sister or something like that. And 
she got embarrassed. So she ran off and hid. Um, but at the time we were dealing with a fit with our other two kids and, and, you know, it's that the, all the doors were closed and locked and, um, you know, so there's no way she could have gotten outside. But once we, we got the other two kids calmed down, we were like, okay, well, where's Ellie? And then she wasn't with my wife and I, so we were like, oh, she's with, you know, her lolly or pops is what, what the, her, her, my in-laws are. Um, so we were like, oh, she's with either lolly or pops. So we asked them and, you know, my, my father-in-law was in the garage working on the car. She wasn't out there with him. She wasn't with my, my mother-in-law. So we started to, you know, we're like, okay, she's hiding. She's, she's, you know, embarrassed or whatever. So we started looking around. We could not find her anywhere in the house. And every minute that went by, it was only like eight minutes or something. We ended up finding her hiding under one of their desks um, because, you know, she got in trouble in front of her grandparents and, and just went off to hide. But in just like those eight minutes, we started to get panicked and started going outside and looking like, what if the door was unlocked? What if she got outside? And like, it was the, just every second that went by was, it got increasingly more terrifying because your mind starts, you know, running wild. So mm -hmm. anyone that loses a child, it's, it's the everyone parents worst nightmare. But if, if your child, if there's something that's a natural cause or something that's not preventable, I, I feel like the, the grieving process probably looks a little bit different than when they're taken from you by, by someone else. And when there's, there's, like we said, preventative actions that could have been taken. So you said the next day you, you is when you first recall saying, you know what, I'm going to dedicate my life to this cause now. Um, what was that like? Like what, what yeah. were the first steps of that? And what were your, your ultimate goals in, in pursuing that kind of activism? Yeah. A couple of things. A, and you're right. The, the grieving process after something like this is different. Um, because of the, the horror of it, the, the, the brutality of it, the public nature of it, uh, it is different. There, there's no privacy in this grieving process. Um, so the next day, that night, um, and the thing about grief, we all do it differently. No two people do it the same way. And my wife and I are no different than anyone else, and we were doing it differently. I was, um, I was having this need to just like go, 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 and my wife couldn't. And so the next day, um, we, we heard that there was going to be this vigil. Um, and I wanted to go, it was, you know, you know, everyone from the area was invited. Um, I just felt this need to be around people. Um, my wife couldn't, she wanted to stay home. So a bunch of our family and friends stayed home with my wife, but my son and I, some of my family members and a couple of friends, we went to the vigil. When I got there, the mayor who I saw the night before, although I don't remember it, asked me if I wanted to take her speaking slot. She was scheduled to speak. And um, I said, sure, what the hell, why not? You know, um, I didn't have anything that I was prepared to say, but I figured, you know, I'll go up there and say something. And I just let it rip. And standing there in front of that crowd, it was thousands of people. They were carrying candles and they were crying. And for the first time in my mind, that's when the nature of gun violence and what happened to my community registered with me. 
Like, I just don't read. Like, I knew it before that. I knew what happened to my daughter. and everything. But, it, like, the, the what that actually meant didn't really register with me until I stood there on that stage talking to that crowd. And that was the first time where I, I said, you know, this was gun violence. And I just remember going home from that and walking in my door and telling my family and friends, and I will clean it up for the purposes of the podcast, that I'm going to break that effing gun lobby. Um, that was the night that I decided I had to do that. Uh, and my life has never been the same since. Yeah. The name of this podcast is What's Your Limp? And it's all about, you know, trying to help people learn that they're whether they're insecurities or things that they've had to overcome or difficulties they faced, how you can take any situation and try to make something good out of it. Yeah. Um, and you've, you've done that. And that is so admirable. And so, and I'm sure that you'd give anything to, to change all of it, you know, to, to have your daughter back, but yeah. the, what you've done with the hand that you've been dealt is so, so admirable. And it also makes me angry when I see some of your daughter's classmates when they speak out and they're called crisis actors. And I'm sure you've gotten crazy things as well. Like you have no idea <laughs> what kind of like one, what kind of uh, criticism or, or backlash have you gotten from people? And also how do you handle that? Well, so, so there's a couple of things going on here. Um, and you know, and I love the name of the podcast and what it means because for me, you know, what happened the day my daughter was killed, you know, what's what's my limp? Would, it would have been, I would say, it was fear and anxiety. I, I was not a person who put myself out there publicly. And my fear and my anxiety died with my daughter. Uh, you know, what she went through, that was fear and anxiety that I'll never, ever, ever be able to have. So my fear and anxiety died with her. And that matters to your question because people are nasty. Not all, most people are actually wonderful. I meet great people across this country, but people who want to get themselves heard sometimes do so in a very nasty, um, despicable way. And, and I've, Get that every single day, whether it be via responses on Twitter or emails that people send me. Um, you know, I got a bunch of them this weekend and they're not people saying, hey, I want to be your new best friend. They're telling me why they think I am the lowest form of life. They tell me things that um, I am uh, dancing on my daughter's grave. They tell me things like, um, you know, if my daughter had a different parent, then maybe she would have been in private school and this wouldn't have happened. Oh, I've heard it all, um, you know, and, and I've been, you know, threatened uh, physically, you know, um, to the point where I've had to have some investigated by law enforcement. And what you usually find is most of them are coming from somewhere overseas, which it, you have these groups that are very threatened by what I do. And so they hire outsiders to act as real profiles or real people to do really horrible things. And they're doing it from some computer keyboard in another country. Wow. Uh, Cause you can, you can see where the IP addresses go to. So 
like I said, I lost this capacity for fear and anxiety. People can now tell me whatever they want to. And I will engage people who are decent and civil. I don't care if you disagree with me. If you're decent and civil, I'll have a conversation with you. Um, on occasion, if things are really grotesque and, and horrible, I will actually share them on my social media platforms um, and retweet people like that with you know my commentary on how awful they are. And then the rest of the Twitterverse chimes in and um, you know, I've been blocked by many trolls um, because they don't like to be called out. I don't care anymore. Unless you have a way to bring my daughter back into my life, you can't hurt me with words. Right. And I, I think that saying that your fear and anxiety died with her, it makes sense because you, you know, as a parent, like your biggest fear is losing your child. And that when that yeah. actually happens you've you've experienced the worst of the worst at this point and nothing so it's it's yeah so it's like what else is there to fear at this point now all you can do is try to turn that into some sort of positive so other people can't don't have to go through the same thing um and also i i know being in texas you know being down in the south people love their guns and it's uh it's something i've never you know i i've never been a gun person i've never gone hunting like i i don't own a gun i own a, a prop gun as an actor but that's it like you know it's something that i've never been <clears throat> crazy about them or it's never been an important thing to me but i have a lot of friends and family who are very passionate about their guns and it's something that i've seen a lot of people it's a very it's an unfortunate response and it's not one i can relate to but when there is another shooting some people immediately rather than saying that's horrible. I can't imagine what those victims are going through or what their families are going through. Their immediate response is, oh, I, I got to protect my guns, like, and and trying to defend, you know, the, their stance on that. Um, and then they get mad at people like yourself who are trying to make positive change. And again, I can't understand that because even if you're someone who um, is very pro-gun, seeing someone like you who lost their child to gun violence, trying to do whatever they can to to make things better. I don't see how you can be mad at that, even if someone disagrees with with you know certain um, certain things you're fighting for or whatever. I can't see how someone could be mad at that because you're just doing what you can. Um, so what what would you say is the most common misconception from from people that? Um, that don't agree with with your stance on gun control what do you see what would you say is the most common misconception they have about you know common sense gun control well th their most common misconception is that they actually even disagree with it because when you talk to them about what it is they're like oh that's nothing you know i can live with that their common misconceptions about me are that i hate the second amendment or i hate guns no, I, I don't, but I hate gun violence. And that's what I'm trying to solve. So the majority of gun owners in this country, actually, when you describe what gun safety is, they support it. So I would say to people, if you are a gun owner or not, but like me, you want to lower the gun violence death rate, let's talk. 
if you want to lower the instances of gun violence, let's talk. If you want to decrease the severity of gun violence injuries when they happen, let's talk. Because we, my gut is, gun owner or not, those are three things that you probably agree with me on. And when we get to the specifics of how to do it, you realize that you as a legal lawful gun owner it has no role on your life, no bearing on your life. So the most common misconception is that people think they disagree with gun safety measures because they buy into the lobby saying it's all about taking your guns, mm-hmm. but it's not. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that looking at it's something i've become very passionate about as well and i don't nearly have as much uh experience or or knowledge on the topic as as yourself but you know just looking at the fact that a couple years ago we had more mass shootings in the year than we did days um and there are you know per capita there's far more mass shootings here than than any other developed country um and it's you look at, at some common sense gun laws in other countries and, you know, places in Asia or Australia or wherever where they've they've put some common sense gun laws in place. And, and it's not illegal to own guns in those places, but the, the gun violence rates have gone way, 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 way down. So it, it's proof that those things can be done and be effective. Um, so what do you think the the main changes um, are that need to be made in order to, you know, make the biggest strides? You know, listen, there, there's, there are several things, but let's all start with the bare minimum. We need to have a functional background check system in this country. We need to know who's trying to buy guns and it should be extended to ammunition because the truth is nine out of 10 weapons in this um, that are used in a crime are illegally possessed weapons, meaning somebody should not, there are people who can't own guns. They get trafficked, they get stolen, but there are people who shouldn't own weapons. If you extend background checks to ammunition, you make those weapons unusable. So I believe strongly in that stuff. We need to repeal PLACA. I need to be able to call these companies that are producing weapons at a rate far beyond the marketing needs Okay, to ask them why. What did you do when you flooded the streets with these weapons to prevent illegal trafficking, to prevent them from being used in crimes? I want to call these executives under oath. Right now, I'm not allowed to do so. And I want to hold them accountable. Um, we, We need to have red flag laws. Okay, we should have a minimum age of 21 to purchase weapons and ammunition. Uh, You know, there's so many easy, reasonable things that don't affect somebody's legal, lawful rights to be a gun owner that if you describe it to people, like I said, the biggest misconception is they disagree. But when you talk about it, we'll say, yeah, there are certain people who shouldn't be in possession of, of weapons. Okay, so let's have red flag laws. Yeah, let's have the background checks. You know, um, let's make sure the businesses are behaving in a responsible way and we can do it through litigation. Let's repeal PLACA. None of this involves walking into somebody's homes with white lab coats, um, block by block, taking away people's guns. 
There's 400 million, there's 400 million weapons on the streets of America today. Whether or not I like it, that's not changing. They're out there. So the question is, how do we reduce gun violence? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And <clears throat> I think it's there, there are certain trigger war, words for people. Like when they hear gun control, they, they feel like, like you said, people are going to take their guns. Same with, you know, uh, defund the police or whatever. Certain things that are hashtags where it's like people hear certain things and they, they think one thing, but really there's a lot more to it. And, and when you break it down like that in, in, in simpler terms, it, it, most people are on the same page. And which is why I don't use the word, the phrase gun control. Yeah. Because it's not, it's right. gun safety. Um, so, so I never, ever say gun control. Gotcha. I will keep that in mind. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. adopt that, that same approach. Um, so, before we we wrap up, I want you to plug anything that you have going on, anything you're working on, your your podcast organizations. But first, I always uh, end the interviews with this. So since we talk a lot about difficult things we've overcome or insecurities or things like that, um, I want to ask you and yours, your, this question for you will be a, a bit different. But I always ask my guests, what's the thing you love most about yourself? And then for you. I was wondering if you could tell me some of the things you love most about Jamie and that you would like to, to, you know, share with, with listeners and, and like them to know about her. Listen, the thing I love most about myself is that I was blessed to have two amazing kids. Um, I'm always a father of two kids mm-hmm. and nothing will ever change. Um, my relationship with Jesse going forward involves doing things together and um, experiencing life milestones. My relationship with Jamie now involves memories. It involves visits to a cemetery and it involves carrying her voice forward through the work that I do. But I'm always a parent of two kids and it's what I love most about who I am. Um, What I love most about Jamie the easy answer is everything. Um, but Jamie was a fighter. Jamie was tough. And Jamie was someone who always fought for people who were less fortunate, I guess, or just didn't have the same opportunities as her. You know, my daughter was only 14 when she was killed, but she had already spent years of her life volunteering for kids with special needs. She had already spent years of her life involved in groups like um, Best Buddies. Um, She hated bullies. She was a petite little kid, but if she saw someone being bullied in school, she would put herself in the middle of it and she would make it stop. Um, Just a funny story about her. Um, When she was in sixth grade, which was the first year of middle school, she came home and told us a story about somebody being bullied and how she made the bully stop and she started describing the bully to me as being this big person and i said you can't do that anymore i said you know now dad comes out i said you're gonna end up coming home black and blue and she just looks me in the eye she goes you know what dad you underestimate me because of my size (laughs) is what she said to me and i said so you think you're tough and she said yes so i pushed her And she pushed me back and I pushed her again and she pushed me back. 
And the third time when I pushed her, she gave me what became known as the kangaroo kick in my house. Uh, my daughter was a dancer. She had these fast, fierce dancer's legs. When I caught my breath and collected myself, I just put my hand on her shoulder and I said, I should be really mad at you right now. But if anybody ever pushes you around, you do that again. Um, and that was it. She was tough. You know, she stood up for right. She stood up for people. And the world lost um, an amazing voice. But I am her voice now. And um, because of the strength that Jamie and my brother, they both have, they both stand on my shoulders. Um, they carry me forward every day doing what I do. I'm sure they're <clears throat> just uh, both just as proud of you as, as you are of them. And uh, I think that, um, you know, I, I feel proud of, of Jamie as well. You saying that because I, as someone who was severely bullied, it were, it was the people like her that stood up for me and uh, that made such a difference in my life. So I'm, I have no doubt that she made a difference for so many people and she continues to through you. Um, and she clearly has awesome parents who, who taught her that um, and an awesome brother who, who taught her how important it is to protect other people. Um, and uh, I'm just, uh, I'm really glad that, that, someone like Jamie existed and that people like you and your family exist. Um, because like you said, the, there's always helpers and, um, and it's so important, the work that you're doing. Um, so I, I have just a tremendous amount of, of love and appreciation and, and respect for, for everything that, that you're doing. Thank you. Of course. Well, um, listen, it's, it's, um, I have, like I said, the good fortune of having these two amazing kids and, and just amazing people in my life who have carried me through every second of everything that happens. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's why I'll never forget the day planning Jamie's funeral. Um, the funeral director handed me a journal and said, have you ever journaled before? And I said, I really haven't. He said, take this and start. One of these days, you'll thank me. And, and he was right. And writing became my therapy. Um, and it was only months after Jamie was killed that I, I decided to write the book. You know, and it is. It's all about the helpers. It is all about the amazing people, whether they be friends or neighbors or politicians or people in media who stepped into my life and have become a part of my life in such meaningful ways. Um, I love talking about my daughter and my son, and I and I hope people get the book to learn more about them. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm gonna as soon as we get off. I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm gonna go on Amazon and, and order it uh, because I'm I really am I'm excited to read it, especially after talking with you. Thank you. Um, and uh, do you have any, I know that you're involved with other organizations and you've started some. So what, what other uh, things do you want to plug that, that you would like? Yeah, to no, listen, um, our foundation, Orange Ribbons for Jamie, which is how I keep Jamie's memory alive. Um, and it, the mission of Orange Ribbons for Jamie is to focus on things that were important to Jamie in life, whether it be 
organizations that support kids with special needs or anti-bullying programs, but also to educate on why her life was cut short. So we do, we, we, we donate to a lot of different organizations. We started a college scholarship program that we call the Kids of All Abilities College Scholarship Program um, with three buckets. Um, one is for a kid who is gonna go to school and major in something where you're gonna help others whether it be a doctor, a therapist, or something like that. The only requirements are 3.5 GPA, one year background in dance, because my daughter danced, and also community service, because my kids did community service. The second bucket is for someone who's going to major in dance. Again, they need to have the GPA, but also community service. And then the third bucket is for a kid with some documented special need. There's not as many scholarship programs around for kids like that. And often families are left in financial conditions that are the result of them needing to take care of a kid with a special need. But we want them to benefit from our college scholarship program as well. So um, we, we have different requirements in that bucket. And many of those kids don't always go on to college. They may go on to some other form of secondary education, but we want to make sure that our scholarship program applies to them as well. So we call it the Kids of All Abilities College Scholarship. The other um, program that we're getting ready to start, we're kind of working on the details of it now, um, is a pro <coughs> excuse me, a program for families affected by gun violence. And what people need to understand for families affected by gun violence is um, very often their financial capabilities become very um, damaged. Sometimes it's a breadwinner that gets killed. Sometimes the breadwinner can't go back to work. Um, and so we are going to start, kind of, we're kind of framing it as sort of a, you know, a, a, an adopt a family of gun violence type of framing. Um, but we're working on the details of that now. Um, so more to come. Wow. That's so great. I'll be sure to put links to everything whenever I, I post this. Um, and, uh, thank you again for, for everything, for agreeing to do this and being so transparent and vulnerable. I, I, you know, can't imagine how, how difficult it is to, to talk about some of it, but I, I think that it's, it's so important for people to hear and to understand, especially the people that may say some ugly things to, to people like you. Um, to hear the pain that that you went through and to hear the realities of gun violence. Um, so maybe the next time they hear someone speaking out against it, they they won't take it so personally or feel so defensive of their guns. And they'll they'll listen to it from the perspective of a father or a son or a, a wife or whatever. Um, and um, yeah, so thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Yeah, it was it was a pleasure meeting you. And uh I, I hope we get to talk again one day soon. I hope so. I appreciate that we did it. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Fred Gutenberg. I warned y'all, this was a really, really difficult episode to get through. I'm just, I'm so grateful for Fred's willingness to be vulnerable and open and to talk about all of this. I'm sure it's so difficult to relive, but. He keeps doing it uh, for Jamie to help others understand the reality of gun violence. Um, we do have a problem in America. I understand 
that guns are very important to a lot of people. I understand that we do have a right to bear arms. But if you are more concerned with that than Fred's daughter's right to live, then I think you have a lot of reflecting that maybe you need to do um, because I can't relate to that at all. There's an issue. We have an issue in America with gun violence. That is a fact. It is undeniable when you look at other advanced countries. Um, and this isn't me getting up on a soapbox or getting political. This isn't a political thing. When you look at the number of people that die every year, every day in America from gun violence, it's it's crazy. It truly is. And there's something that needs to be done. Something has to change. I really hope that all of you got something out of this episode and that you were moved by it. Um, and I hope all of you go give Fred a follow on social media. Check out his organizations. Go check out his book. It's really, really good. And support uh, the, the incredibly important work that he's doing to fight gun violence. Anyway, I've taken up enough of your time today. Uh, before I go, I am going to announce next week's guest. And that is Sophia Herzog, a Paralympian swimmer who uh, just got done competing in her final Paralympic Games. And she does a lot of charity work uh, for athletes with disabilities and for, for children and is a really, really special person. So I'm excited for all of you to hear that. It's much lighter than this one. So uh, you, you most likely don't need to have the... Uh, tissues nearby because this one definitely isn't as much of a tearjerker but uh, I hope all of you tune in for that just remember to love your limp and to love others anyway have a great week and enjoy this original outro music from Devin Levi and give him a follow at Devin Levi Music I'll talk to y'all later